Happy Easter, everyone. He is risen. He's risen indeed. Amen. All those out in overflow, he's risen. He's risen indeed. And all those watching from home, he is risen. He is risen indeed. Cinderella tries on the glass slipper and it fits and she marries the prince. T'Challa defeats Killmonger in the Vibranium Mine and brings peace and restoration to Wakanda. Luke Skywalker lifts the helmet off of Darth Vader. He sees his father face to face. The Death Star is destroyed. They're partying with the Ewoks on Endor. Elsa ends winter. Hans is arrested. Kristoff gets a new slave and a kiss from Anna. Nacho Libre defeats Ramesses in a wrestling match and buys a bus for the orphans to be able to take them on field trips. We all love happy endings. The bad guy is defeated. The good guys win. The girl marries the boy. We love happy endings. As we come to the last book in our study of God's word, we come to a happily ever after. You see, the Bible is one book from Genesis to Revelation. It's not just a collection of books. It's not just a collection of stories. You see, if we read the Bible like a collection of individual stories, we'll actually never get to happily ever after. I mean, you think of some of the most famous Bible stories like David and Goliath. David, the unlikely hero, defeats the, defeats the giant Philistine Goliath. You expect happily ever after, but that's not, that's not what happens. Saul starts throwing spears at David. He chases him through the wilderness for multiple years. David finally becomes king. You expect happily ever after, but that doesn't happen. David commits adultery and homicide and then his family falls apart and the kingdom that he built declines and then is eventually exiled. We're longing for this happily ever after, but we don't see it in our lives, do we? We, we? we don't see it even in the individual Bible stories. We see it only when we view the entire storyline together. So let me bring you up to speed in terms of the story of the Bible. It begins in the book of Genesis. It means beginnings. Genesis begins by saying, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He created everything around us. And he made Adam and Eve in his image. And he gave them the responsibility and privilege of having dominion, of reigning as little kings and queens over this new creation. God put them in a paradise garden. He put the tree of life in that garden, inviting them to eat from it so that they could live forever. He put another tree called the knowledge of good and evil what, that they were not allowed to eat from. The serpent slithered into the garden, deceived them. They, rather than living a life with God, they wanted to live lives like gods. That's what the serpent told them. If you eat this fruit, you will become like God. And so they rebelled against God and they were exiled from paradise. They were kicked out of Eden. But God had made a promise that one day, an offspring from the woman was going to come and crush the head of the serpent and made all, make all things right. God made the promise even more clear to Abraham saying that, that even though he was old and he was old enough to be a grandfather, that he was going to be a father. And they have this miracle baby and he's promised that, that his offspring will become this great nation as many as the stars in the sky. And, and that this nation will then bless all the other nations of the world. But then Abraham's offspring 
end up being enslaved in Egypt for 400 years, but God sends Moses and rescues them out of that. He sends them, he gives them his law. He has them build a tabernacle, a tent, a symbol of his presence going with them. But they build an idol. They break the first commandment, literally like in the first few days of being free. It's like committing adultery on the honeymoon. They, they turn their backs on God, which just sets a whole pattern of God rescuing and redeeming and God's people rebelling. And then God puts them in the promised land, the land that he promised to Abraham. And he, he puts a king over them, David. But as I said, it's not happily ever after with David or his son Solomon, who built the temple, but then started worshiping idols and all of their descendants followed suit until they were eventually exiled and conquered by the nation of Babylon, where they spent 70, 70 years living in a foreign land. But God brought them back. The temple gets rebuilt but it's still not the same. You expect happily ever after. And then God sends his son. And, and all that we're celebrating this weekend takes place. He is crucified in our place. He is crushed for our iniquities. He dies as a substitute. He is killed. He dies the death that we deserve to die. And he's laid in a tomb. But the, but the stone is rolled away three days later. The women discover that it's empty. Peter and John run there. And they discover that the Lord is not there. That he is risen. And then he sends his spirit as he ascends into, into heaven. He sends us his very presence, not to be around us, but in us. He sends his spirit. Now we expect that to be happily ever after. But loved ones, as we, as we keep reading, I mean, the way the book of Acts ends, Paul is in house arrest. He's, he's an enemy of the state. It's not just the Jewish leaders who are persecuting the Christians now. The Roman Empire is involved in actively trying to dismantle what God has built. And all of the disciples end up getting arrested. They end up getting killed. They end up being put in exile. Where is the happily ever after? That brings us to the book of Revelation. Revelation gets its name from chapter 1, verse 1. It says the revelation of Jesus Christ. The Greek word there is apocalypsis. An apocalypse doesn't mean the end. It means the revealing, the unveiling, the unveiling of the happily ever after. It's written by one of Jesus' disciples. One of Jesus' disciples who was longing for the happily ever after. Look at chapter 1, verse 9. It says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. John introduces himself. He's one of the disciples, one of the sons of Zebedee, James and John, the sons of Zebedee. And he says that I'm your, I'm your brother. The church is meant to be a family. God is our father and we are all brothers and sisters together. But he also says, I'm your partner in tribulation and the kingdom and the endurance that, that are in Jesus. John knew tribulation. John knew what it meant to be persecuted. He and Peter went to the temple in Acts chapter three. They heal somebody. They end up getting arrested for it. They're thrown in prison. They're, they're beaten John's brother, James, in Acts chapter 12, Herod executes him. John knew what, it, what he's longing for the happily ever after. My brother's dead. He's on the island of Patmos, which is where the Romans put all of their political enemies. It was like a prison island. 
John's not leaving there. And he's longing for a happily ever after. He's, he's, he's part of this patient endurance that he mentions in verse 9. That's what the book of Revelation, that's really his aim, is to help us patiently endure the difficulty that we experience in this world, knowing that the happily ever after is not yet here. So in Revelation chapter 1, John has this vision, this incredible vision of Jesus Christ. And he's standing among the lampstands. The lampstands are a symbol for the local churches in a particular area. Let me just show you just sort of a general outline of the book of Revelation as we get started. In chapter 1, he has this vision of Jesus among the seven lampstands. Then in chapter 2 and chapter 3, seven letters are written to these churches. The number seven is going to be really, really important in the book of Revelation. Then in chapter 4, John is told, come up here. And John is revealed. John gets an apocalypse. He gets a revelation. He gets a picture of a new perspective, a perspective from heaven and a perspective looking into the future. And that's what John has revealed to him. And that's what he describes in this book, a vision of what's going on in heaven and a vision of what will happen in the future. And the first thing he sees, Revelation chapter 4 and chapter 5, he sees a throne in heaven. If you're taking notes today, you can jot this down, that as we think about the happily ever after, we need to remember that even right now, even when we're waiting for it, that he reigns on his throne. He reigns on his throne. Revelation chapter 4 is all about praising God as creator. Revelation chapter 5 is praising Jesus as redeemer. Chapter 5 verse 1 says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, that's God the Father, a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. This scroll is like, is like a title deed. It's like a last will and testament. It's an important document that, that, that once this document is open, all that is wrong will be made right. All that is broken will be built back up. And so this, this scroll is so significant historically and so sacred spiritually that it's sealed seven times. Important documents like this would be written on the front and the back. This is not a surprise that there's a scroll like this. It's not a surprise. The surprise is that it's sealed seven times. I mentioned that seven is an important number. Seven is the number of completion all throughout scripture. It is as sealed as sealed could be. Normally you'd have one seal, but we got seven seals on this scroll. And then the question is asked in verse two, and I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll? and break its seals. Verse three, and no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And look at verse four, and I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. Who is worthy to open this deed or this will? Who is worthy to open this important document that will lay out the restoration of all things? And, and John's looking around and no one is found worthy. They look in heaven, there's no one. They look on earth, there is no one who is worthy. And John weeps. 
John looks at what is happening in his world politically. He looks at what's happening in his own life personally. He's exiled on this. He's thinking back to his brother James who was executed because of following Jesus. And he's wondering, when will all of this stop? When will righteousness actually prevail? And he looks and he has this sense of hopelessness because no one is found who is worthy. Do you ever have times like that in your life where you look at what is happening in the news and our culture around us? You look at what is happening in your immediate circumstances You even look at what is going on in your own soul and you wonder, when will this end? And that is what John is going, he's having one of those moments, he begins to weep. And then in verse five, it says, one of the elders, there's 24 elders around the throne, one of them says, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah. That's going back to Genesis chapter 49 and Jacob blessing his 12 sons, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. David, who was to have one of his offspring, who was to reign on the throne forever. It says that he has conquered. He has the victory and he can open the scroll and its seven seals. He is the one who will put things right So this is what John is told. He says, stop weeping. The lion of Judah. So then John now is looking for the lion. He's looking for this victorious, glorious, majestic lion. And what does he see in verse six? And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw a lamb standing as though though it had been slain a lamb standing as though it had been slain. The one who reigns on his throne is standing there as though he had been slain. This lion conquered by being a slain lamb. All throughout the storyline of scripture, at key moments, dead animals tend to show up. When Adam and Eve sinned and they recognized the shame of their nakedness, they used fig leaves to try to cover themselves, but God had an animal sacrificed and he took their skins and he covered them. When Abraham was, was, was thinking that he would have to offer up his son Isaac onto the altar and he's confused but he's trusting God, again, God provided an animal to be sacrificed in his son's place. At, at Passover, when the angel of death was going to be moving through Egypt, every household had a dead lamb and took the blood and put it over their, de- their, their doorpost so that the angel of death passed over. At the tabernacle, animal after animal, day after day is being sacrificed for the individual and collective sins of the people of God. And here in heaven is a lamb standing as though slain. He's a conquering lion, and yet he is a crucified lamb. This is Jesus Christ. This is one of the many beautiful and glorious paradoxes in Scripture that Jesus conquered by being defeated. Jesus restored life by being put to death. Now, if you're trying to picture in your mind, how can he simultaneously be a lion and a lamb? How can he be standing and be dead at the same time as though he had been slain? Well, listen, if you're trying to hold those two things in your mind together, just welcome to trying to study the book of Revelation, okay? John is seeing things in heaven. He's seeing things in a whole different way. 
That's why when it goes on, it describes that this lamb had seven horns. Horns going all the way back to Old Testament imagery is a symbol of strength. Again, seven is the number of completion. So he has all the strength. And then he has seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He's omniscient. He's all-knowing. He's clothed in the spirit. Verse 7, and when he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. So he is the one who was worthy to take the scroll. Look with me at verse 9. And they sang a new song, saying, worthy are you. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Notice that Jesus with his blood has ransomed people for God. A ransom is a price you pay to set someone free. If someone gets kidnapped, the kidnappers often lay out a ransom note saying, you need to pay this amount and we will set your loved one free. Jesus, his blood, the reason why he's there as a lamb that has been slain is because with his blood, he has purchased, he has paid the ransom price to set us free. And who has he set free? He has set free people from every tribe and language and people and nation. Every tribe, every language, every people, every nation. The story tells us from the very beginning that all of us came from the same parents. We're all related. We're all part of this one massive extended family, Adam and Eve. Acts chapter 17, verse 25 says that God made from one man all of the nations of the earth. And whatever we think may divide us, whether it be culture, whether it be skin color, whether it be finances, whether it be education, whether it be our upbringing, we all come from the same place. And every single person, no matter where you come from, no matter where you look like, no, no matter what, every single person has been purchased with the same price, Jesus' blood. So the encouraging thing is, is that we all come from the same parents, and so we shouldn't treat it and, and, and each other any different from one another. And that's the way that God intended it. But the, that, that's, the, that's the encouraging thing, but the discouraging thing is because we all come from the same parents, we also have inherited their sinfulness. And all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And one of the major ways that we sin against God and sin against one another is treating other people differently based on how they look or where they come from or what their culture is. And chapters like this remind us of where we came from. We all came from Adam and Eve and where we are headed and the price that was paid for all of us that the blood of Jesus Christ was needed to pay the price. Why? Because every human being on planet earth is made in the image of God and equal in immeasurable and inherent worth, value, and dignity. And so the sin of racism, like all other sins, is a sin not just against people, by thinking you're somehow superior to someone else because of the color of your skin or, or whatever it may be. It's not just a sin against other people. It's a sin against the God who created them. Who made them in his image. And so we, if you are here today and you have been ransomed 
by the blood of Jesus Christ. We need to make sure that we are putting to death the sin of racism in our lives and in our communities because that is not God's purpose or plan. We all came from Adam and Eve. We are all, Revelation 7 says, there's gonna be an innumerable multitude, multitude, I just invented a word, an innumerable multitude standing before the throne from every tribe, language, nation, and tongue. And so we must be intentional here at Hope Church to make sure that we are loving and embracing the diverse body of believers who have all been purchased with the blood of Christ. Then look with me at verse 10. It says, and you have made them a kingdom and priest our God, and they shall reign on the earth. They shall reign on the earth. Again, he's, he's going to open the seals. He's going to make things right. He's going to put things back the way they were meant to be. Remember what God said in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. Let me show you here on the screen. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. Be little kings and queens. Rule and reign over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So Jesus is worthy. He is the lamb who is slain. He has ransomed us so that we could reign with him. But the truth is, when we look at our world, Christians, those purchased by the blood, we're certainly not reigning right now. We're, we're, we're certainly not the ones who are in charge. What about those who are ruling and reigning? What about those who oppress the people of God and the people of this earth? What about them? That leads us to our second point as we study the book of Revelation, as we reveal what is, what is, as God reveals what's happening in heaven and what will happen in the future. So we know that in heaven, God will, God is reigning on his throne. Jot this down secondly. He will conquer all evil. He will conquer all evil. Let's bring our little diagram outline of the, of the book of Revelation back on the screen. So now we're in chapter 6 and chapter 7 where the seven seals are opened. Once the seventh seal is opened, that introduces another seven. Are you noticing that John is kind of into sevens? So you got seven letters, seven seals, then seven trumpets. These, this is God enacting, enacting the, the, the sort of the last play, the final act in human History. Then we come to Genesis, then we come to Revelation chapter 12, and we're introduced to this dragon, or should I say reintroduced, because we met him in Genesis chapter 3. Genesis 12 has this vision of this woman who is about to give birth. We think about Eve when, when she was she's the, to be the mother of all living. We think about the people of Israel and the promise of the offspring. We, we think about the, the church of, of Jesus Christ as, as the bride of Christ. There is this woman that is, that is giving birth. And then in verse 3 it says, and another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and on his head, seven diadems. Those are crowns. He's got some measure of authority on these multiple heads, multiple horns. Verse four, his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and cast them down to earth. Notice this. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. So this dragon is intent on destroying the offspring of this woman. So you think about it. You think about Cain killing Abel 
destroying the offspring. You think about Pharaoh in Egypt, killing the offspring of the little Hebrew babies. You think about Herod trying to decimate all the little boys in the city of Bethlehem when Jesus was born. We, we see the devil is intent on destroying the offspring. He's intent on, he was even intent on destroying Jesus on the cross. But Revelation 12 tells us that Jesus was caught up to heaven, that he will rule the nations with a rod of iron. There's a war in heaven. The devil is sent down to earth. And then while he's on earth, he begins enacting a counterfeit creation. Satan can't create things on his own. He's, he's not a creator. He's a creature. And all he can do is, is counterfeit and imitate what God has created. Then we get into chapter 13 and we're introduced to these beasts. Look at chapter 13, verse 1. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, just like the, just like the dragon, and ten diadems on its horns, and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's. Its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. So again, you're trying to picture this in your mind. It's got multiple horns. It looks kind of like a bear, kind of like a, kind of like a leopard, a kind of like a lion. Well, what is going on here? Well, back in Daniel, Daniel had visions of beasts and they represented empires. He not only had the vision, he was also given the interpretation of the, of the vision. And the, he was looking forward. There was an apocalypse for Daniel. There was a revelation for him where he was able to see into the future. And the ten horns represented Rome. The, the leopard represented Greece. The bear represented Persia. And the lion represented Babylon. But now here... We have the accumulation of all these world powers that had opposed the people of God at different times. Now they've all come together in one super beast with all of this power. And, and the devil gives him all, all, the, all the power and authority that the devil has, he gives to this beast. Then look at verse three. One of his heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. So there's sort of this imitation resurrection that this beast has. Verse four says, they worshiped the dragon for he had given his authority to the beast and they worshiped the beast saying, who is like the beast? Verse five says, and the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words. It was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. That's three and a half years, half of seven. He was, notice he was allowed you see, don't get the wrong impression that as you're reading the book of Revelation and the dragon's doing this and the beast is doing that, that somehow the dragon and the beast are in charge. No, they're allowed. They're permitted to have authority by none other than God. Look at verse seven. It was also allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. All authority has given over every, it, all authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. And so there's this beast, and it's, it's 
It's a picture of all of the world powers coming together. Every historical kingdom and all of their power is nothing compared to this beast. It has all of this authority. God permits this beast to have authority. Look at chapter 13, verse 11. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. So there's this second beast who's sort of like the, like the, um, like the PR um, public relations representative for the beast. And he makes boasts about the beast and all of, all of these things. But Satan is simply counterfeiting. Here's, here's the dragon making his own unholy trinity. You got the dragon and two beasts, just like the holy trinity, father, son, and spirit. Let, let me, let's drill a little bit deeper into the, uh, into the, um, into the imitation that the, that the beast is doing. Can, can we get the beast diagram up on the screen here? So the beast had a mortal wound that was healed, like a phony resurrection. And remember Revelation 5, the lamb was standing as though slain. The beast had multiple horns as a, shot, as a sign of strength, but Jesus has seven horns, ultimate strength. And chapter 13, verse 7, it said that this beast had authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. But the lamb had ransomed people from every tribe, people, language, and nation. And it seems like everything's going the beast's way because people all over the earth worship the beast. But remember, in Revelation 5, the lamb's the one on the throne. And not only are people worshiping him on earth and under the earth, but also... They are worshiping him in heaven. He is the one with true authority. And the lamb in chapter 7, verse 3, he puts a seal on all of his followers' forehead. And then what does the beast do? We, we often know the sign of the beast, but we don't understand. The sign of the beast is just a copy of the seal that is to go on all of his followers. Don't, listen, you could be concerned to make sure that you don't get the sign of the beast, but you got to make sure you have, the, you have the seal of the lamb. Do you know what I'm saying? That, is, that comes first, and that is far more important. Because those who have the seal of the lamb, as it says in, in verse 8, all who dwell on the earth worship it, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life. So everyone will worship this beast except those who follow Jesus. So we're introduced to the dragon and these two beasts. Let's bring the, the, the outline of the book of uh, Revelation back on the screen. Then in chapter uh, uh, 15 and 16, we are introduced to another seven. Seven bulls are poured out on the planet. And then we're introduced to another picture of evil in Revelation chapter 17 the great prostitute, Babylon. Look with me at chapter 17, verse three. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names and that had seven heads and 10 horns. There, she's, so this woman is riding on the beast. Verse four, the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs. Of Jesus. 
The saints are the ones who are supposed to be reigning. They were the ones who were ransomed by the blood of Christ, but their blood is in the cup of this woman, Babylon, who's getting drunk on their suffering. Notice how the beast was all about power, the leopard, the lion, the coming together of all of these evil empires, the horns, the sign of strength, this raw, coercive, political, and military power. But riding on the beast is this prostitute who's not all about power, all about pleasure. Just all about live however you want to live and sexual immorality and go ahead and get drunk. And her name is Babylon. As we follow the storyline of scripture, we remember that Babylon was the place where the people of God had to live while they were in exile. And they were, the, they were the people that were telling people like Daniel, who were trying to remain faithful, eat this food, bow before this statue, stop praying to your God. And Babylon represents this pressure to conform. So there's the, now we're, we're in John's generation, in our generation, in every generation of Christians throughout all of history, each generation has been able to read their own situation and circumstances into the book of Revelation. And we're all trying to figure out how all of this will make sense. And, and all of us throughout history have seen different things in our own life. Now, can you not see this happening in our world right now? A powerful, coercive government. Can you see that? Can we see that beginning to form? And can we see riding on that powerful course of government is this call to live pleasurably, to live in sexual immorality, to live in any way. Can, we, can, you, can you at least imagine that that could be happening in our world today? You see, loved ones, we are called, Revelation chapter 18 verse 4 says, come out of Babylon. A call to the saints, come out of her. Do not be like Daniel. Don't conform. Don't go along for the ride. I know there's political pressure. I know there's cultural pressure. I know there's the lure of temptation that goes along with all of that as well. But persevere. Remember, John said, I'm your partner in tribulation and in patient endurance. And this is what we are called to. We're called to live separately, even while we find ourselves in our own sort of Babylonian exile. And as we patiently endure, we'll see what so often happens. How many battles in the Old Testament does it happen where the enemies end up fighting against one another and the people of Israel don't have to do anything? That's what happens in Revelation 17. The beast that the prostitute is riding on turns on the prostitute and devours the prostitute. And then in Revelation 18, we have all of these songs about the, the fall of Babylon. And remember, Satan's always doing the counterfeit thing. Now, spoiler alert, there's another city, the New Jerusalem, that stands in stark contrast to the city of Babylon. Let me show you what I mean. So here's Babylon. She's in the wilderness, Revelation 17.3. Revelation 17, Revelation 21.10, we see the city. When John goes to see the city, he goes onto a high mountain. Chapter 17, Babylon is a prostitute. Chapter 21, verse 9, the new city is the bride of the Lamb. There's purity, there's devotion, there's holiness. The city of Babylon's clothed in purple and scarlet. The new Jerusalem, the city is wearing pure and bright clothing. 
The city of Babylon is carrying gold, gold around her neck, gold in her, in her, in her hands. She's carrying gold, but the new Jerusalem, the bride of Christ, is made of gold. And so, loved ones, patient endurance is what we're called to. Don't give in to the lure of this world. Don't conform to the pattern and the pressure of this world that's trying to squeeze you into its mold. Patiently endure and expect to be welcomed into the new Jerusalem. So we've been introduced to evil. Now we're going to see how Jesus will conquer evil. Turn with me to Revelation 19. I don't know about you, but I, I'm done talking about evil. I want to talk about justice. So Revelation chapter 19, verse 11 says, Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. Those are crowns, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty on his robe and on his thigh. He has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. These beasts may have crowns on their heads and their horns, but there is one who is on the throne. And there is one who is the king of kings. And so Jesus shows up to make things right. And then I love this. Look at verse 19. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse against his army. So you picture that just like all of our favorite stories, what we expect to happen right now is this big epic battle. The beast is there. All the kings of the earth are there and they're going to come and they've got the the rider on the white horse. They've got him surrounded and they're going to have this big battle. And so what we would expect is the battle would be epic, right? They'd be slashing swords and fighting one another in hand-to-hand combat. Maybe maybe the, the rider on the white horse would get knocked off his horse and maybe the sword would fall out of his mouth and he'd be reaching for it. And you think it's all, you know, what's going to happen? And then he comes and so what we would expect is a sort of epic battle. It's not an epic battle. So they're all gathered. Look at verse 20. And the beast was captured. It's just a simple, it was over before it began. There is, when it comes to evil versus good, there's no yin and yang. There's no dark side, light side of the force. It's just good wins. Jesus went and the beast was captured. Notice it doesn't say that there was a big battle. It was just over before it began. The beast was captured, and with, the, and with it, the false prophet, that's the other beast, who in, who in its presence had done the signs which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. Notice, these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire. So the prostitute Babylon, she's been destroyed. The two beasts created by the dragon... They've been destroyed. There's one more enemy that needs to be destroyed. It's the dragon. It's the serpent. Now he's bound for a thousand years. Jesus reigns on the earth for a thousand years. It says in Revelation 20. And then we pick up the story in Revelation 20 verse verse 7. When the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that 
that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. Here we go, another big battle is coming. Satan now with Gog and Magog and all of these armies. There's as many soldiers as the sand on the sea. And then it says, verse nine, and they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. Again, we're thinking, buckle up. This is going to be an epic battle. Oh my goodness, there's going to be some back and forth, you know, some punches and some counter punches. But look at the middle of verse nine. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. It's over. It's over. It's over before it started. They got all their uniforms on and they got all their weapons and they're marching there and they're doing their count. Yep, as many as the sound of the sea, the sand of the sea. They got the city surrounded and fire came down and consumed them all. And then the one who was promised would crush the head of the serpent all the way back to Genesis 3, 15, verse 10. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. Babylon's gone. The beasts are gone. Loved ones, the dragon's gone. He's crushed the head of the serpent once and for all. But the Lord's not done with conquering evil. He's conquered political and cultural evil with the beast and with Babylon. He's conquered spiritual evil with the dragon. But there's one more conquest that needs to happen. The evil that is inside every single human being. So it says in verse 11 of Revelation 20, then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it from his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. You, could, you, you can't escape this throne, even the earth and the sky. Verse 12, and I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. Notice everyone's there, small and great, old and young, rich and poor. Wherever you were born, whatever culture you're in, whatever color your skin is, everyone is there before the throne. There's the throne and then there's books. And in the books is written everything that all of us have ever done. And it says that people will be judged according to what they had done. They're going to go through the books, line by line, sin by sin. Now, some of us think, well, I'm going to bring my own book and I'm going to, I'm going to talk about the, the good things that I've done. Well, does that work in the court of law? If someone's accused of a crime, does the good deeds of the person, like, do you get off for drinking and driving if you, you know, the day before you helped an old lady cross the street? No, you're still guilty of drinking and driving. Do you get off for, for murder because, uh, because you volunteer at the homeless shelter? No, you, you still are guilty of murder. It doesn't change what you're guilty of. So people will be judged according to what they have done. And then in verse 15, it says, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, was thrown into the lake of fire. So God's judgment is just and right. We may not see it in our everyday lives, but there is a day of reckoning that is coming. Everything's being written down. Every unsolved mystery, every unsolved murder or crime, every conspiracy, every cover-up. 
things people in this room, you, you, you think you're getting away with. People watching on the screen right now, you think you're, getting, you're not going to get away with it. It's being written down. You will be judged. The, the books are there. But loved ones, the Bible tells us right here that there's another book. And regardless of what is written about you in all of these books, for your judgment, if your name is written in the other book, you escape the lake of fire. You escape the punishment that all of us deserve. Why? Because the lamb was slain. Because he has ransomed you. He shed his blood so that we could have our name written in the book of life. Loved ones, this is the gospel. Christ came so that we could escape the judgment that all of us deserve. And so those of us who have our names written in the book of life, and please be sure, are you sure? Are you sure that you have repented your sin of your sin and placed your faith in Jesus Christ for forgiveness? Do you believe that he suffered and died for you on the cross? Is your name written in the book of life? Is it? Because if your name is written there, not only do you escape the lake of fire, you get welcomed into what's described in Revelation 21 and 22. Which brings us to our third point. So we've talked about how Jesus reigns on his throne and that he will conquer all evil. And then lastly, he will dwell among his people. He will dwell among his people. Let's bring up the uh, kind of diagram outlining how this all fits together. So we've, we've just hit chapter 19 and 20. That's the battles and the judgment where the beasts and the dragon are destroyed. The judgment where everyone whose name is not written in the book of life is thrown into the lake of fire. And then in chapter 21 and 22, we're given a picture of a new heavens and a new earth. Revelation 21.1 says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Christ passed away. He died and was resurrected. You and I, as we are found in Christ, we have died with Christ and have been resurrected. And loved ones, this planet is going to pass away. It is going to die. The, bull, the, the bowls, the trumpets, the seals, the planet gets pummeled. The planet dies and then the planet is born again. The planet is recreated. There is a new heavens and a new earth. Verse 3 says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. God says the dwelling place of God. That word there, just like in John chapter 1, could be translated the tabernacle. Remember all of the, all of the important significance throughout the storyline about God's dwelling place. It started in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 1 and 2, and then God had them make a tabernacle in Exodus 24 through 40, and then Solomon built the temple in 1 Kings 8. And then Jesus came and said, I am here to dwell among you. I'm here to tabernacle among you. Tear down this temple and in three days I will rebuild it. That's what we celebrate today. So the dwelling place of God is now ultimately fulfilled. Everything that Eden pointed to in the tabernacle and the temple and Jesus. Verse 9 
Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. The city is coming down out of heaven from God. Babel was trying to build up to God. The city of Jerusalem is coming down. And then he describes the city. Look down at chapter 21, verse 16. It says, the city lies four square. Its length, the same as its width. We can all fathom that. And he measured the city with its rod, 12,000 stadia. So 12,000 stadia, a stadia, you, you go to a stadium to watch a track and field event. The stadia is the track. So, you know, like... 150 meters, 200 meters or so. So 12,000 stadia is like 2,000 kilometers. So the city is big. Width and depth. It's like, you know, standing right here as far as like Orlando, Florida. And then, you know, going over because it's a square. It's going all, you know, over past Dallas, Texas. And then find your way back up, back up north and you're like in Bismarck, North Dakota. You're like, I don't know where that is. I didn't know either until a couple of days ago because I was trying to figure out how to map this out for you. Think about how massive this city is. But not only is it four square, it says its length and width and height are equal. It's height. It's, it's, it's a cube. And then it says in verse 18, the wall was built of jasper while the city was pure gold. It's a giant golden cube. Now we've been following the storyline, trying to find, you know, patterns that, that repeat themselves all throughout scripture. I mean, any other giant golden cubes in the Bible? No, there's no, there's no giant golden cubes, but there is one golden cube. Remember in the tabernacle, in the temple, you had these different divisions. You had the outer courtyard and then the holy place. And then where the Ark of the Covenant was, it was called the Holy of Holies. Well, when they were constructing the, the temple, in 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 20, it says this. It says, the inner sanctuary, this is the Holy, holies, the holy of Holies, was 20 cubits long, 20 cubits wide, and 20 cubits high. It's a cube. And he overlaid it with pure gold. It's a golden cube. It's a tiny, it's this tiny little room, but it's overlaid with pure gold and it's a square. It's a cube. And loved ones, in that tiny little cube, one man, a priest from one, from one clan, the descendants of Aaron, from one tribe, the tribe of Levi, from one nation, the nation of Israel was allowed to enter in one day, Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, to all, one man from, from one clan and one tribe and one nation was able to go there one day a year. And now, loved ones, in this new golden cube, not just one man, but people from every tribe, nation, tongue, and language. Not just one clan, but people from every tribe, tongue, and language. Not just one nation, but people from every nation, language, tongue, and tribe. We have the whole New heavens and the new earth. The whole city is like us being in the holy of holies. Because the ultimate sacrifice has been made. The lamb has been slain. It's amazing. But in this incredible city, three things are missing. Look at verse 22. 
There's no temple. I think we all understand why. Because the whole thing is the temple. Because we're in the very presence. Of, we're, in the, we're in the holy of holies. There's no temple. Look at verse 23. It says that there is no sun. There's no need of sun. Why? Because God, the glory of God, gives it light. And its lamp is the lamb. So there's no temple. There's no sun. And then loved ones, there's no sin. There's no sin. Look at verse 27. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. This, that book's a big deal, isn't it? We keep hearing that. Lamb's book of life. Lamb's book of life. Nothing unclean will enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false. No sinners are allowed in. It doesn't mean that those who get in are somehow better. It just means what? It means that their lamb, their name is written in the lamb's book of life. It's all grace. It's all grace. The only people allowed into this glorious city are those not who have done better deeds than other people, but those who simply have their name written in the book of life. There will be no sin. No sin out there, loved ones, and no sin in here. There'll be no more bullying, no more murder, no more hatred, no more lying, no more prostitution, pornography, or human trafficking, no racism, no theft, no hate, no bigotry, no backstabbing or betrayal, no jealousy, no arrogance, no pride. We'll be free from sin once and for all. But loved ones, it gets even better. Look at verse 22. Then the angel showed the river of the water of life. Remember the, the river flowing out of Ezekiel's temple in Ezekiel 47. Remember Jesus in John 7 talking about the river of life. Here it is. It's bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. And it says through the middle of the street of the city also on either side of the river, the tree of life. The, the tree that Adam and Eve were, were prevented from eating from, the, the tree that was guarded by the two cherubim on the eastern gate in, in the Garden of Eden, the tree is there. Anyone's allowed to eat from it now. The tree of life is there. When we think about dwelling place, it goes full circle. It goes from Eden to Eden. That we are welcomed back into God's paradise. Verse 3 says, no longer will there be anything accursed. The curse is gone. The curse that came from sin is gone because sin has been dealt with. It says, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him. Verse 5, they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. We're going to reign. We were ransomed so that we could reign. We were ransomed so that we could be redeemed and so that we were ransomed so that we could return to Eden and live out the purpose for which we were created with God as king and us as his vice regents, little kings and queens ruling and reigning on this planet that he has created for us. We can reign because we have been ransomed. So loved ones, when we think about the big picture here, remember the story started with God saying, let there be light. There was no sun at that time. That was before he created the sun. He just simply created light. And he created all things. He created the, 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 
the paradise, the garden of Eden that had the tree of life. He blessed the people. Human beings were created to reign. He gave them dominion, but in slithered the serpent, which brought sin and a curse and death. But because Jesus Christ died and crushed the head of the serpent, from death we move to life. The curse has been taken away, Revelation 21.3. The serpent has been destroyed, Revelation 20.10. Humans reign, Revelation 22.5. They get to eat from the tree of life, Revelation 22.2. And there's no need for sun because the God who said, let there be light and can have light without a sun is the one there dwelling in our midst. Loved ones, this is the storyline This is the happily ever after. And notice that the end of the story is really just a beginning. We're back to the beginning here. When I think about some of my favorite stories outside of the Bible, there's really nothing that I love more than C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia. And in the last battle, the the final volume in the seven volume Chronicles of Narnia, this is the last paragraph of that story. It says, and as for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Nardia had only been the cover and the title page. Now, at least, they were beginning chapter one. One of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever and in which every chapter is better than the one before. Loved ones, the end of the story is just a beginning. That we were created to reign and we have been ransomed so that we can reign. This world is broken But if you would believe and if you would faithfully endure tribulation and hardship, which is what John is encouraging us to do, we will reign. And we will see this world that is so broken be transformed, recreated into something that is so beautiful. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the glorious author of this beautiful story We pray right now in the name of Jesus Christ. We pray, Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit, God, that with everything that we have, we would live lives of worship, that we would live lives of holiness, that we would live lives of patient endurance, Lord. God, this world is so broken, but you have a plan to make things so beautiful. Free us, Lord, from the seduction of Babylon, free us, Lord, from the pressure to conform to the ways of the beast and the dragon. God, draw us close to you. We pray, Lord God, that we would be people who are longing, who are waiting, who see the brokenness in this world, but are trusting that you will make it beautiful. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.